It is very good to see all of you today. I'm thankful to be here. Um, for anybody that I don't know, I'm Julia Allen. I am one of, the, one of the founding members of Garden City, and I am married to Pastor Dennis, who incidentally is not here today because he's preaching at another church. He is preaching at North Hills Christian Church, which is a, a local church that supports our ministry here at Garden City. So we're in different places today. But um, I'm excited to get to be here today, and I'm just going to start us off with prayer, and then we will jump right in. <clears throat> you are a good, good father, and we are loved by you. Jesus, we thank you for the gift of being able to come into your presence together. We thank you that you invite every one of us just as we are. Father, would you meet us today in the, in the tender places? Would you meet us in the places where our hearts are hard and soften those places? Would you meet us in our grief and our pain? Would you meet us in our joy, our anticipation and hope? Holy Spirit, be present to us today. Humble our hearts. Help us to hear what it is that you have for us today. We love you so much, and we thank you for your love for us. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. <laughs> so a little bit of my story. I was raised in the church that my parents were part of planting. And all throughout my childhood, it was the only church that I had ever known. My family was there, my friends were there, my mentors were there. The people who literally introduced me to Jesus, who taught me about his love and the beauty of the gospel, who taught me and showed me what it is to worship, not just with my voice, but with my life, who helped me learn about and fall in love with the scripture, the Bible, and store the words of it deep in my heart and mind. They were all part of that church. I grew up with that church, and it felt like family. And I went away to college and grad school, <clears throat> and I eventually came back and started volunteering and serving there again. And then I re-met this guy that I'd known back in college, and fell in love and got married. And then he went and became a pastor there. And we had our first kid, and then we had another, and another, and then two more. <laughs> and we were raising them as part of this same church that I was raised in. And I loved that church. And somewhere along the way, some things started shifting in me about the stories and the themes of the Bible and the way they kind of met the world around me the beginning of our marriage, we'd moved out of this suburban area that I was raised in here into the north side, and something about living alongside neighbors whose lives just didn't look anything like mine and who had different perspectives on God and faith got me asking questions. Now, I was not deconstructing my faith, as they say, to be edgy or trendy, I just started to realize that some of the very black and white understanding I had 
of the ways of God and the mission of the church didn't really meet everyone, didn't really work in every context that I was seeing. And I figured that if God loved the world, then the gospel should be good news for everyone, right? But I started noticing that in my home church community, there were certain political affiliations, certain perspectives on social and economic issues, certain narratives on race and gender and sexual orientation that were viewed as incontrovertible and unquestionable. That didn't seem to me to fully line up with the heart of Jesus, at least as I was understanding him, as I was reading and learning more about him. So I kept asking questions, and I was listening and learning and reading and praying and studying. And my perspective and understanding started shifting. The center of my faith remained unchanged. My love for Jesus and my desire to follow him was a constant. But the way that I understood what following faithfully in his ways meant in the world that I was living in, that was changing. And the further along the path that I went, the more I challenged some established ideas about how believers in Jesus can faithfully engage the world around us. And the more opposition I encountered, the more resistance it triggered, the more rejection I experienced. <clears throat> I remember the day that somebody that I love very much, in a moment of conversation and disagreement, just reached this point of frustration and said that maybe it was good that my dad wasn't alive anymore because he'd be ashamed of me now for the things that I believed and how far I'd gotten from what I was raised to believe. And that crushed me because I wasn't giving up on Jesus. In fact, I loved him more than I ever had before. Oh my goodness, how I needed Jesus. But I realized I could share the same primary faith with someone, that we could call the same Jesus Lord and be in agreement about the most foundational aspects of our faith. But coming to different conclusions about some things that to me seemed secondary could provoke this deep anger, accusation, and rejection. It seemed that some of the things that should have been secondary had been elevated to primary importance and then used as a justification to reject, exclude, and oppose, even though we shared the same faith. I would venture a guess that some of you folks understand what I'm talking about from your own experience. I know some of your stories, and I know you have felt the sting of rejection and opposition too. Sometimes, following faithfully after Jesus, trying to take on his character in ways provokes resistance, opposition, and rejection. Sometimes that even comes from those who are closest to us. But what happens if despite that opposition and resistance, we push through, if we persevere and stand firm and don't give up? Can we know more of God's character can we dive deeper into the depths of his goodness and mercy and become someone more like Jesus? 
We're going to get into that question a little bit today as we continue in our study on the book of Acts. Today we are in Acts 6, verses 8 through 15. I'm going to go ahead and read it, and you are welcome to read and follow along. Now Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, performed great wonders and signs among the people. Opposition arose, however, from members of the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, Jews of Cyrene and Alexandria, as well as the provinces of Sicilia and Asia, who began to argue with Stephen. But they could not stand up against the wisdom the Spirit gave him as he spoke. Then they secretly persuaded some men to say, We have heard Stephen speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. So they stirred up the people and the elders and the teachers of the law. They seized Stephen and brought him before the Sanhedrin. They produced false witnesses who testified, This fellow never stops speaking against the holy place and against the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs that Moses handed down to us. All who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at Stephen, and they saw that his face was like the face of an angel. So, this passage focuses on the story of a man named Stephen. And a lot of us may have heard of Stephen before. We usually know him as the first martyr of the Christian church. And while that is how Stephen's story ends, this is the part of the story where we get to learn a little bit about him and about what leads him to this point of surrendering his life for the sake of the gospel. And we were just barely introduced to Stephen last week in the passage, passage that Pastor Dennis taught through. He was part of this small group of Hellenistic or Greek-speaking Jews who were chosen and commissioned by the apostles to solve the problem of the inequity and the distribution of food to the widows in their community. And we don't really get any backstory on Stephen beyond the fact that he's not one of the original 12 apostles. And we don't actually know when or how Stephen came to faith in Jesus. But what we are told about Stephen is primarily about his character. He's referred to in these few short verses as a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, a man full of God's grace and power. And he's described as a person who performed great wonders and signs among the people. And he spoke with this unopposable wisdom that was given him directly by the Holy Spirit. However or whenever Stephen came to faith in Jesus, there's one thing that seems clear. He's a person who is walking intimately in step with the Holy Spirit, with this power of Jesus profoundly present in his life in ways that are evident to everyone around him. But that power of the Spirit in Stephen's life, it's not received positively by everyone around him. We're told that this opposition rises up against him from a group of people that they call the synagogue of the freedmen. Basically, the synagogue of the freedmen has its name because it's made up of former Roman slaves, Jewish people who had previously been enslaved by Roman citizens or were descended from people who were enslaved by Roman citizens and who immigrated to Jerusalem from these different regions that are named in the passage. And it might seem kind of counterintuitive that they would choose to name themselves 
based on this heritage of slavery. But the thing that's interesting is because they were enslaved to Roman citizens, when they were freed, they became Roman citizens themselves. And in this time and day, in this community in Jerusalem, that status as Roman citizens actually kind of elevated their social status. It made them people who carried a marker of higher social status. But what really matters for our understanding of the passage is this. The people who first rise up to oppose Stephen are part of the same ethnic or cultural group that he's part of, the Hellenistic Jews. And the synagogue of the freedmen is very likely the synagogue that he had been part of. To say it kind of more clearly, the people who rose up and opposed him were likely fellow members of Stephen's own home church. They were, at least at one time, his people. Now, they first come after him by trying to argue with him, to try to debate him on the content of what he's teaching. But we're told that they could not stand up against the wisdom that the Spirit gave him as he spoke. So now, this very agitated group of people who failed to silence Stephen with their debate decides to take their grievance up the ladder and try to silence him with the law. And to make that happen, they secretly convince some other people to start spreading this rumor about Stephen that they know are going to get people worked up. They claim that they have heard Stephen speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. And that rumor does exactly what they hoped it would. It gets all kinds of people riled up in the community, in the crowd, but then also the Jewish religious leaders and teachers of the law, and they seize Stephen, and they take him to trial before the high council, the Sanhedrin. And as Stephen stands in trial before the Sanhedrin, we're told that these false witnesses come and testify against him, that this fellow never stops speaking against this holy place and against the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs Moses handed down to us. So what does that accusation mean exactly? Why has Stephen's life and teaching triggered such a hostile reaction, not only among the Jewish teachers and leaders, but the people, his own people? I think he poked at their idols. Look at the charge before the Sanhedrin. This fellow never stops speaking against this holy place and against the law. This holy place is the temple in Jerusalem. They're accusing Stephen of speaking against the temple and the law. Now that might not seem like such a big deal to us. Certainly not provocative enough to warrant a death sentence. But what if the temple and the law had become their idols? See, the temple in this Jewish culture had this very deeply significant, even sacred place. It was the religious, cultural, political, even economic center of the Jewish community. And in the innermost portion of the temple was this place called the Holy Holies, and it was the place they considered to house the presence of God himself. So speaking against the temple was considered to be a very serious offense. 
historical records showed something really interesting, that capital punishment in this society, in this time, it was only allowed by the decree of the Roman governor, who was way above the Jewish people, except for offenses against the sanctity of the temple. So that tells us something, doesn't it? It wasn't crimes against other people that could get you a death sentence in the Jewish community. It was if the Sanhedrin believed that you spoke or acted against the sanctity of the temple that they could pronounce and execute a death sentence. And if all of that doesn't seem serious enough, they also accused Stephen of speaking against the law, which was honored and elevated at least as high, if not higher in importance in the Jewish faith, as the temple. Now, it's important to remember that Luke, the author of Acts, refers to the witnesses as false witnesses. And we're told that the people who initially stirred up the crowd, they were secretly convinced to circulate these rumors about him. So it's not like this process has exactly been on the up and up, and the charges against Stephen aren't exactly truthful. But, like many rumors and accusations that end up gaining momentum, there was likely a small, small element of truth in what they were saying about him, and all of that distortion, just enough to make it stick. Because Stephen isn't out there desecrating the temple or undermining it as a valuable site of practicing their faith. But in the next few verses, as he responds to the Sanhedrin, he will cite the Old Testament and suggest that the temple shouldn't be overestimated in its importance. He says, the Most High does not live in houses made by human hands. And while Stephen does not reject the law, but actually uses the law to make his case against his accusers in this really, really long speech that we're going to get to next week that Pastor Shaq gets to teach about, um, he is suggesting that there is a new and more perfect way to understand the kingdom of God in light of the lordship of Jesus. And he is raising questions that second-guess the supreme levels of importance that have been placed on the human traditions that surround the faith. He's suggesting that they have taken things of secondary importance, and, he, and they've made them primary. And when we take things that are secondary and we make them primary, we turn them into idols. Stephen is exposing their idols the idols of the temple and the law. And human beings, we love our idols, don't we? Idols are often the way that limited, finite beings like us make sense of the infinite and incomprehensible. It's the way we take what is far beyond our understanding and we fit it into this nice little box that we can comprehend and control. Idols make us feel safe. They make us feel powerful. And when someone or something makes the ground under our idols shake a little bit, we get angry and we get scared and we get defensive. When we follow faithfully after Jesus, taking on his character and ways and reflecting his power, the idols of our people get exposed for the counterfeits that they are. And when idols are exposed and start to crumble, 
opposition and persecution rise up. But I want to come back to this question that I asked earlier. What happens if we persevere in the face of opposition, if we stand firm and don't give up? I think we get part of that answer in the final verse of this passage. All who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at Stephen, and they saw that his face was like the face of an angel. That's, that's weird, right? His face looked like the face of an angel. What, what exactly are we talking about here? See, Stephen was a man full of the Holy Spirit. And the presence of the Spirit of God within him transformed not only his character, but even his appearance as well. The language that's used here echoes this description of Moses in the book of Exodus that when he went up on the mountain, up on Mount Sinai, to receive the law, receive the Ten Commandments, and he spent all that time in the presence of God, and he came back down the mountain, they say that his face was radiant, so radiant that he had to cover it with a veil. When we dwell in the presence of God, following faithfully, taking on his character and ways, we might just start to look like Jesus. And church, our, people, our world needs more people who look like Jesus. Our world needs people who have endured resistance and opposition, who faced tension and rejection, who haven't given up and turned away, but who've pressed in further to the presence of Jesus, coming to know him so intimately that we start to look like him. Can you imagine the transformation in our world if all the people who claimed the name Christian actually looked like Jesus? I believe this is the challenge for us, church, as we live in this world very imperfectly, trying to follow faithfully after Jesus. As we take on his character and his ways and start to look like him, like Stephen, we will start to confront the idols of our people. The temple and the law had become a stumbling block to people knowing God, and our idols can too. What idols of our people have we maybe unknowingly served that create barriers to people knowing Jesus? I think in the Christian church, we can probably think of a lot of idols that we've made if we're honest. <laughs> I think we've made idols of our image, idols of materialism and prosperity, idols of political affiliations, idols of colorblind unity. But there's one idol that I feel very compelled to call out specifically here. And I'm saying this humbly as a person who surely does not have this all figured out but who's experienced really deep conviction in this area. I believe we need to acknowledge as a church that we've turned sexuality and orientation into an idol too. We've decided who's in and who's out, who gets to belong in church and who doesn't get to belong, solely based on a person's sexuality. 
there's, I mean, you can correct me if I'm wrong, there's no other group I can think of that the church looks at and says, fix that first, and then you can come be a part of us. We love to say things like, come as you are, and Jesus meets people where they are. But do we actually live as a community like we believe that is true? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. But for how long have our church communities acted practically as though that applies to everyone except the LGBTQ plus community. I want to say this as gently and humbly as possible, but I think we have made the mistake of making sexual orientation a primary thing when it's always been a secondary thing. And we've used a secondary thing to exclude to oppose and reject people that Jesus invites to sit at his feet. I think for a lot of people in the church, and I've been one of these people, holding this perspective that I'm speaking about and saying it out, saying it out loud feels like undermining the sanctity of the temple and the law. But I believe we must be a community that creates space for every person to belong, regardless of sexual identity or orientation. I believe we need to persevere through the tension and resistance and fight to be an inclusive community that looks at our LGBTQ neighbors and says, we do not have this all figured out, but you really can come just as you are, just like every one of us. You really can belong. Jesus' arms are open wide to all of us, and there is space here at his feet with us. And we can listen, and we can learn, we can follow, we can love and be loved and share this journey of coming to look more like Jesus together. Because God just wants his kids to come home, right? And I think... We've got to keep reminding ourselves that the wildly expansive, radically inclusive gospel is for all of us. And we are not meant to be gatekeepers. Church, we're going to stumble along the way. We are going to get things wrong, and we are going to hurt each other, and we are going to need to repent and repair. But let's persevere in it together. Let's follow God faithfully together taking on the ways and the character of Jesus. Let's be transformed to look more like him because our world needs more people who look like Jesus. Let's pray. <clears throat> Jesus, you hold it all together. God, your love is overwhelming. It is utterly nonsensical, incomprehensible, undeserved. God, help us to be people who follow faithfully in your footsteps, who take on your character in ways 
who begin to look like you. And God, let us never set up barriers for any other person to come and be present to you and follow along that journey as well. We love you so much, Father. In your name we pray. Amen.